We begin in France, where President Emmanuel Macron says nothing is off the table when it comes to stopping Vladimir Putin. There is no consensus today to send ground troops in an official, endorsed and sanctioned manner. But in dynamic terms, nothing should be ruled out. Nothing is off the table, according to France's Emmanuel Macron. Could some of Europe's leaders be thinking the unthinkable as the war in Ukraine enters its third year and the Russian bear shows no sign of loosening its grip on Ukrainian territory? As European leaders gathered in Paris this week, there was a sense of foreboding and the death in prison of Alexei Navalny is a further reminder of just how far the Kremlin will go to suppress its foes. Nowhere is the threat posed by Russia felt more acutely than on Europe's eastern frontier, especially so in Estonia, home to a significant ethnic Russian population. Welcome to Powerplay from Politico, where we talk to some of the world's most influential people on both sides of the Atlantic. I'm Anne McElvoy, and my guest this week is the Prime Minister of Estonia, Kaya Kallas. On President Putin's wanted list, she's one of the most defiant voices, warning of the danger of further Russian aggression, and she was recently talked about as a candidate to lead NATO. What happened to that? Kaya Kallas, welcome to Powerplay. Thank you for having me. I'm going to dive straight in, Prime Minister, and say you've made little secret of your ambition to succeed Jens Stoltenberg as Secretary General of NATO when he steps down in the autumn. Have you given up on that now that Mark Rutte seems to be the runaway favourite endorsed by US, UK, France, Germany, it's getting a bit more difficult for you, isn't it? No, I mean, I'm, I'm not an official candidate, but I said that I would like to be considered, considering that, you know, we have been in NATO for 20 years and there has not been a single person from our region. And if you think about Poland and Hungary, then they have been there for 25 years and still it is still only the founding members. But I was never considered. So, so I mean, this is how it works. But do you think that the job should have gone to one of the eastern flank of the alliance countries or indeed a woman? I mean, do you feel disappointed on either of those counts? No, uh, I mean, uh, for us, uh, what is very important is that, uh, you know, it should come from a country that fulfills this 2% defence investment pledge. Uh, That was issued uh, 10 years ago in 2014. And still in 2023, only 11 countries fulfilled that. Estonia has fulfilled that for 10 years, and now we are spending over 3.2% uh, of our GDP on defense. And, and you know, I would have thought that uh, when the f- full-scale war started in Ukraine, that would have been a wake-up call to all the European countries that this is a conventional war going on in Europe. We have to do more because in 1988, all the NATO's countries spent uh, over 2% because the threat was real. The Cold War was going on. But now we are still not there. So that is the main criteria because that also shows that this country takes defence seriously. So is it a bad signal that the job looks likely to go to the candidate of a country which only contributed 1.7% of its GDP to NATO last year, the Netherlands' contribution? Well, that is a big question. Of course, uh, Mark Rutte has other positive qualities that he has been a, a prime minister of a coalition government, which means that you have to you know, bring different parties together. You have to find compromises, which is also a very important quality. But yes, if we think about a, you know, a geographical balance, it's going to be the fourth secretary general from 
the Netherlands. And then there is a question whether there are, you know, first rank and second rank countries in, in NATO. Are we equals or are we not equals? So these questions still remain. You haven't raised the point which I actually raised with a, a previous guest, the foreign minister of Latvia. Of course, NATO's never had female leadership either. Is that as important to you or less important than the points that you make about the geographical makeup of the way that NATO has been led? Well, of course, it would be nice if it would be a woman considering that uh, 75 years it has all been men. But uh, I don't think this is the most important point. Uh, more important is how, you know, the attitude towards defense, how seriously uh, this is taken and also how seriously the threat from Russia is considered in NATO and also uh, how we really proceed in NATO with the decisions that we really have to make. I think this is important. You uh, certainly are important as far as the Kremlin is concerned because you've recently ended up on the ever-lengthening Vladimir Putin wanted list and you've described that as a great honour despite the death of Russian opposition politician Alexei Navalny. We know that these things can have really serious consequences in so real world consequences. Are you concerned for your own security? No, I'm. I'm not concerned. Uh, uh, why Putin does this is to, you know, really make me afraid and make me refrain from the decisions that I would otherwise make. I've been the most uh, vocal uh, voice uh, regarding helping Ukraine, and this is definitely I've deserved the Kremlin's attention. But uh, I think you know it shows also that Putin's playbook hasn't changed. Like uh, there was a arrest warrant for, for my family in 1949 to send them to Siberia. This is the same way that they are operating now. But I think we have to be strong and, and this is what they want for us to be afraid. We shouldn't give them that. How do you think Mr. Navalny's death has changed the calculus of the war in Ukraine, if indeed it has? I think it has again uh, reminded uh, our Western partners that uh, how Russia operates, uh, like in in plain daylight, really, uh, killing uh, the opponents. And this is the dictator's handbook. So I very often see, still see, and we have seen that uh, for quite some time before we enter NATO and and also during this, that, you know, there is this real wish for Russia to be a democracy. And then if there was a new leader, then everything would change. It will not change. Like the historian Timothy Snyder said, in order for a country to become better, it has to lose its last colonial war. So Russia has never lost its last colonial war. And that's why we have to concentrate our efforts uh, now so that they would end and really lose their last colonial war. Only then we could see some kind of change. Because if people admire dictators, uh, then there is no obstacle in becoming one or submitting to one. And it doesn't matter who is this person. We will move now on to the war more broadly in, in Ukraine and, and your views on where that's going. But last thought on the Navalny case, there are various accounts doing the rounds, some from the Navalny camp and the family. We've also been doing our own reporting, talking to intelligence sources around this. Do you believe that he was murdered on Kremlin orders? And do you have any account of his death that you can offer? Well, uh, this is the playbook, uh, you know, of a dictator, like plain dictator's handbook. 
keep the cronies around you happy, keep the army and the power structures happy and eliminate all the competitors. So, so because if the cronies around you are looking that, okay, this guy is going to the wrong direction, ha they have nowhere to turn to because there's nobody. So it is clearly in the interest of, of Kremlin to get rid of all the opposition. And if you think about these fake elections that are coming now, they are even afraid of any alternative candidate raising, although they are not serious enough uh, to contest Putin. Everybody sees that, but, but even that they are trying to take them down immediately so that there would be... But I, was, I mean, my point is, do you have any evidence for thinking that Mr. Navalny was murdered on the Kremlin's orders? I mean, uh, we have evidence, I mean, before uh, that he tried to poison uh, Navalny. I mean, he put him in prison. He tortured him in prison. I mean, this is widely known. Who else would, uh, would have an interest to kill him, really? Let's talk about where Ukraine is heading and the idea of conflict between Russia and NATO, which Mr. Putin has said this week would be inevitable if Western troops were to go into Ukraine. That was in response to comments by President Macron. And do you agree with Emmanuel Macron about not ruling out putting boots on the ground in Ukraine too? Because that has that's opened up, if you like, a new front of argument on top of the fraught conversation about weapons deliveries, where I know you've been very forthright. But what do you think about actual physical presence uh, in this war in Ukraine by the Western allies? You know, first of all, uh, I think it was a very timely summit. I think that uh, it has really what President Macron uh, said is the spirit of victory. What we have to do that Ukraine wins. And we have to discuss all different uh, things that we can do, I think. The outcome of the meeting is that we are going to buy ammunition elsewhere from around the world so that we could deliver them immediately to Ukraine. There's also an agreement that we will look into our stocks and warehouses. What more can we give now immediately? Of course, the training of the soldiers and, and everything related to this. Of course, uh, behind closed doors, we discuss all these things. And I think... Uh, Behind closed doors, we have to discuss what more can we do. And, and for us, it is very important that the, you know, the big countries have understood that we have, have to do everything. Russia can't win this war because then we're going to talk about more severe consequences. So uh, I'm, I'm, just to be, just yeah. to be clear, Prime Minister, are you saying that you support President Macron in his attempt really to open up that conversation about what it may mean to put boots on the ground in Ukraine. Now, for a lot of people listening, that will just sound like the one-way track to a very dangerous escalation. No, uh, it wasn't his proposal. I mean, uh, his proposal uh, wasn't as strong as you, you put it. But uh, what we discussed behind closed doors, we have to discuss openly. And I think it is also the signals that we are sending to Russia that we are not ruling out different things. Uh, what more can we do? Because we have understood, like all uh, the countries have understood that we have to do everything so that Ukraine wins and, and Russia loses this war. Otherwise, we're going to see this war spreading and nobody wants that. Nobody really wants to uh, see that. So I think that we have to discuss all these things behind closed doors. I, I also really commend uh, also... President Macron's leadership to bring us all together in such a short notice because the time is of essence and what more can we do? And I think 
we have to focus on the decisions that we made uh, in this meeting that are very important. I mean, if you think back, there was a huge reluctance to buy ammunition elsewhere than Europe. Now, uh, this barrier has gone. I think it helps a lot uh, already. Then President Macron has supported also uh, my idea of Eurobonds, that we have to discuss where we get the funding. I mean, because it's everybody's problem. It's sounding like you're in a close alliance with President Macron. No, is he your um, favourite uh, European we leader? Are, we are in, in close alliance with, uh, with all the NATO's countries. I mean, I can also say that uh, the other uh, big country, uh, Germany, has done a lot. If you think about the military aid that they have given to Ukraine in absolute numbers, and they are doing a lot. So I think all these big countries are very important. And I think there is a, a fundamental change. If you think back to 2014, when uh, Russia annexed Crimea, and now when the big countries are actually, you know, thinking, what more can we do because Russia can't win this war? Well, I mean, Olaf Scholz, German Chancellor, just said he doesn't think his party should be the party of war. So he's a bit more of a fence sitter, isn't he, on how far to go on helping Ukraine? No, but I think, you know, uh, if you really look into the numbers, uh, what they have given to Ukraine, I think it is it is not fair that uh, Germany has been bashed uh, so much because they have done a lot. Of course, we are all democracies and democracies depend on public opinion, which is different in different countries. Uh, how far can you go? And I think we need leadership in Europe, uh, both by Germany as well as France. They come up with different ideas what to do. And in the end, we compromise, we agree. But I think everybody's uh, role is important. So no more Germany bashing. <laughs> well, I, I don't think it really works. I, I think what works is that we are constructive and and having these discussions, what can we do and where are the boundaries of different democracies as well? I think this is also that we have to listen to others and in the end come to a conclusion what we really are able to do. Fair amount of Donald Trump bashing around at the moment as he continues his magisterial ascent to the Republican nomination. Looks very much like he is going to be the candidate could well end up in the White House. How seriously do you take Mr. Trump's assertion that he would let Russia attack a NATO country if it didn't pay its fair share? Do you think that he would actually do that or even pull out of NATO? Well, I was just in Munich Security Conference. I was in, in one panel together with uh, Hillary Clinton. And, and she said that everything Trump says, uh, please believe him because he's going to do it. Uh, uh, I mean, he has been very open about his plans. And I think we should take it as such. But it doesn't really come as a surprise. I mean, he has been of that opinion also when he was the president uh, of the United States. So I think what we have to do now, and we, I mean, should have done already, all the countries in Europe should have done a long time ago, is to invest more in defense. But we're in the position we're in now. We're in election year in the US. True. Donald Trump looks like he, you know, he has a very good chance of becoming president. So what would you change about the way you're a leading voice now in Europe? And I think a lot of people just look sort of look to you as the first line of response to something like that. Simply saying, well, you should have paid more before doesn't sound like it's yeah. quite current enough. So I wondered if you had other thoughts about how to 
deal with that potential yeah. threat to NATO? Well, it's it's still not too late, is it? Uh, I mean, to boost the defense and also why why have proposed you know out of the box solutions like uh, eurobonds that we you know really raise money outside a European budget in order to make these defense investments now. What I've also proposed is we have a very vibrant tech sector and the defense industry to bring them together. What more can we do faster, more clever? But of course, uh, what comes to United States, then every country chooses their own leaders and we have to work with the leaders that uh, these democracies choose for themselves. But uh, we have to take into account and consider what he has been saying. We have lots of questions from political uh, readers and listeners. Uh, there's a couple here that sort of hang together a bit. Is it inevitable that Ukraine would lose the war if Congress doesn't pass the $60 billion aid package? So I would maybe even boost up that question and say, are you concerned overall that Ukraine is losing the war? No, uh, I think we have a strategy for victory. We have to believe in victory and we have to work for the victory because otherwise, if you go for plan B, then the plan B is going to happen. And if you don't put victory as a goal, nothing would happen. So, uh, of course, it's a great concern if uh, the U.S. doesn't come to support, considering that uh, we have seen this in history before, if you think about 1930s. Uh, that also ended up uh, costing United States much, much more than it would have been initially. So, so that is also my plea to uh, Republicans as well as Democrats. I have had meetings with them and to really bring them on board what is it for United States uh, at stake here as well. Uh, I think the majority of them actually understand this and would vote for the support of Ukraine. It wasn't a mistake to push for a million rounds of ammunition from the EU countries to Ukraine. That was Estonia spearheaded this pledge. A lot of other countries were sceptical it could work and just over half of those ammunition rounds will be sent. Isn't that a symbolic example of the fact that Europe promises more than it can deliver? I think without an ambitious goal, you wouldn't achieve anything. Uh, what it showed is that we have gaps in our capabilities that has also sped up the uh, military spending, but also the military industry or the defense industry to really manufacture more. And in relation to that, now we have come to the point where we say, okay, we can't buy them in Europe, but we buy them elsewhere. So we are able to deliver still to Ukraine. So, so definitely wasn't a mistake. Uh, very many good things have come out of it that go to the right direction. We'll be hearing more from Kaya Callas on whether a big job in the EU might tempt her after this. I remember talking to you, I think it was in the pandemic, so it was a, a, around that time, but it was a, a period you know, when, you, when you were coming to the fore in international affairs and, and asking you about people you admired who'd inspired you, and you mentioned Angela Merkel. That is, and said, you know, she'd, she'd been very sort of kind to you when you came onto the block as a a new leader and a female leader. Her record looks less convincing now on uh, defence and security and indeed energy policy than it did. Have you changed your own view of Angela Merkel's time in office? Uh, no, uh, she's still a great leader. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with all the policies of her policies, but that doesn't mean that she isn't a great leader. But if you if you lead your country into energy dependency on Russia... 
and support Nordstrom too against the advice of Estonia and other allies. Are you really that visionary a leader? Well, these have been the things that we had uh, been talking about for long, uh, but uh, she wasn't the only one. Uh, if you think about, you know, the picture where, you know, the Nord Stream pipeline is opened, uh, we see many leaders who are also around the table right now that were, you know, just uh, beside the Russian leaders on that picture. So I think it is fundamental misreading of Russia. Uh, we have been warning about this, but I think, Again, let's concentrate. Uh, but she did turn a deaf ear, Prime Minister. Yes, didn't she? but uh, we shouldn't avoid. Uh, I mean, we should avoid the mistakes that were made then, and let's concentrate now. And now, I really feel that we are being listened to. A question about Estonian politics from Marit at Politico reads: The presence of Russian or Russia-speaking minorities in post-Soviet countries has been used and abused by Russia to justify illegitimate territorial claims and interference in other countries. What kind of policies do you feel Estonia and the Baltic countries need to pursue now to address this issue? Is that indeed something that worries you when you look at your own sizable Russian or Russian-speaking minority? Yeah, first of all, uh, please don't use post-Soviet countries. I mean, uh, we don't say Germany is post-Nazi country or, or I mean... Uh, this is what well, we don't use. We are in we, the post-Soviet era, are we not? We, in the sense we of Mr. Putin. Occupied, we were occupied by Russia. And, uh, you know, words matter. Words matter. So if he, you know, Russia wants us to put into the box of uh, being some kind of a union. We were not. We were occupied. So that is one. Uh, the second is that in 1922, when we were independent, our Russian-speaking minority was 3%. So they deported Estonians and brought in Russians. My own family was deported to Siberia. So by the end of occupation, it was 30%. Now it's around 25 Why I'm telling this is that uh, you have to understand the, the bigger picture. Now, we are constantly you know, doing the polls and studying our Russian-speaking minority. They are not the homogeneous group. A majority of them consider Estonia their home and they see what the Russians are doing when, you know, the Russians are coming to liberate the other Russians in those countries. That usually means that they are the first one to lose their homes and their close ones to the war. So, so they don't want that. And I think our Russian-speaking minority is less prone to believe the propaganda of, of Russia. Those who live closer to Russian border because they see that the life on the other side is so much worse. Uh, we have also a generational divide. Um, the older people who were the ones who came in when we were occupied, they were the masters then, and they want this feeling back. So they want, you know, Russia to be ruling us again. Whereas the younger generation, they they understand that, you know, uh, they are pro-Ukraine and, and they are part of our society. So it is not the homogeneous group. And we try to work with them so that, we say that we might have a different past, but we have a common future. So let's focus on building that common future. You have also been investing from domestic budgets in your defence of that border with Russia. Does that imply that you think the NATO offer is not solid enough to guarantee the defence of your country in the event of any incursion or invasion? Well, in NATO's uh, charter, we have the Article 5, but we also have the Article 3, which says that everyone has to do their utmost for their own defense. 
So that's why we are doing everything to build up uh, our own army and our own defense, but we are also participating in the collective defense. So these are not uh, uh, somehow contradictory. It wouldn't be a Politico podcast without some really gritty EU bubble questions for you. Do you think it's time for a Baltic European Council president or high representative for foreign affairs or even a new EU defence commissioner? Because your name has been floated there and possibly your vibrant, increasing friendship with President Macron might be a help in that Renew group. Well, I've always gotten along with President Macron very well. So so this is, uh, this is not the question, but of course, after the uh, elections, the European Parliament elections, all these questions come up. And I think it's, it's a compliment uh, for me and, and for my country that, uh, that my name is circulating when every uh, or these uh, positions are being discussed. But uh, it doesn't work. But there's quite a lot of them. For those of us who still see it as a sort of scrabble board, well, which one of those <laughs> would be most enticing yeah. to you? EU Defence Commissioner, how about that one? I can offer it to you on this show. Well, I'm the Prime Minister of Estonia, so so uh, right now this is my main job. You could be the Liberals' lead candidate in the EU elections, uh, couldn't you? The EPP has its candidate, and Ursula von der Leyen, the Socialists, will uh, choose Nicholas Schmidt on Saturday. No, no news about the Liberals. Yeah, Liberals, yeah. I've been asked whether I could be the lead candidate, but there is, of course, uh, uh, this problem that uh, can I be the Prime Minister at the same time? Uh, Although, you know, we both know that Liberals don't run for the European Commission president. We don't get that result from the European Parliament elections. So it's rather to represent the Liberals in the debates. It doesn't mean that I'm I'm the actual candidate. But I think back here, uh, domestic politics, uh, it is quite hard to explain that, you know, I'm just helping the Liberals. So does that mean you could take part in debates with uh, von der Leyen and Schmidt? Well, uh, right now it's up to me to really give a response whether I I am able to take this up. Uh, But uh, yeah, the Liberal Congress uh, that decides is coming up in uh, end of March. So the answer is? Uh, Well, uh, I'm giving you a vague answer because I still have to write down the pluses and the minuses whether I take this up. But one side, I really want to help the Liberals to do a better result than many parties around the Europe uh, have said that if you would be the lead candidate, that would help them back home. But of course, I would be under fire here uh, in Estonia. And and I don't think, uh, you know, I have a lot on my plate anyhow. I think we kind of roasted you on both both sides on on that question in the Politico way. A couple of quick fire thoughts. And this goes back also to interviewing you when you first came into office. I remember some aspects of being asked about being a woman leader didn't land so well with you. You know, you thought there was sometimes too much focus on appearance and and, uh, things that people just take for granted when it's a mere man in the role. But we did have a listener question saying how easy is it, especially in this position where your your role is amplified by the war in Ukraine uh, and by that conflict with Russia, to do that as a woman and also to have family responsibilities. Are you surprised that that question still gets asked? And how do you think about it now that you're more experienced in office? Well, I am surprised, but uh, I can't deny that it's a very masculine world. So I can't deny that it's difficult. And I hear in domestic politics, I very often feel that I'm treated differently uh, and not in a 
more gently way, but uh, vice versa. So, I mean, there was a good book written by uh, Julia Ebner, Going Mainstream, how, how also this misogyny is going more mainstream uh, than it was before. So I also feel that uh, quite a lot. Are you, what are you, are you thinking about there? I'm just thinking about things I have read about Estonian politics, which is obviously not everything, but you know, there were, there were some negative stories last year about your husband's business interests in a, in a company that was still trading in Russia. Are you thinking of it through that prism of the way that you're seeing this sort of responsible for everything in your family, or are you thinking about it more just in terms of your, the reception in society? Uh, well, there is a lot. I mean, I have a lot of, a lot of examples that I will, will not bring at this time. We don't have time, but you know, I even asked once the journalist that uh, why are you demanding this from me when you are not demanding this from the the other party leaders? And and you know what they replied? They said that we have higher standards for you, which is I think uh, somehow in conflict of saying that we need more women to politics, but then we have those, and for those we have higher standards than the others, and we are requiring them to jump over a higher fence. Uh, so I don't think it's entirely fair, but, uh, you know, uh, there is no point in complaining either. Then you say that you're playing a victim and that is also not good. So everything you do is not right. Well, you're one of a, a number of global leaders. We've been very proud to host uh, on the Power Play podcast. And we ask all of them before we let them go back to the more minor business of actually governing countries who they would like to hear on the podcast. We hope that we can persuade you to be a regular uh, listener and many around you. But who could we put in the hot seat where you've been joining us today? Maybe it's President Macron. Uh, well, you can definitely try him. He's a very interesting person and definitely has a lot of thoughts. Uh, so, so why not him? Or Olaf Scholz, for that matter. Great. I'll say this is Kaya Kallis' personal recommendation. See how far that gets me. Thank you so much indeed, Prime Minister, for joining us today. Thank you. All the best. That's all for this week's edition of Power Play. If you'd like to get all of our episodes immediately they published, do go ahead, follow Power Play wherever you're listening. We're available on all major podcast platforms and we'd love it if you'd rate and review us preferably when you're in a good mood, and that's a five-star kind of thing. The senior producer in London is Peter Snowden, the executive producer in Brussels, Christina Gonzalez. I'm Anne McElvoy, and thank you for listening.